0: to the middle east law and governance podcast middle east law and governance is a journal for scholarly analysis focusing on issues of governance and social economic and ideological transformation in the modern middle east and north africa and this is our podcast my name is ezra carmel and today we are lucky to be joined by dr jillian schwedler uh, who is a professor of political science at the city university of new york's hunter college and the graduate center Uh, In addition to numerous journal articles, she is the author of The Wonderful Faith and Moderation, Islamist Parties in Jordan and Yemen, as well as Towards Civil Society in the Middle East. And her forthcoming book, which I'm eagerly waiting for, uh, focuses on protests in Jordan. Uh, Jillian is also a very active member of the editorial board of Middle East Law and Governance. Uh, In the 2019 volume of MELG, she edited a special issue with Larissa Chomniak, uh, which focused on critical interventions on the spaces and practices of state power, uh, and our first issue of this year was also a special issue, which was again edited by Gillian, along with Mark Lynch, uh, and it focuses on Islamism after the Arab uprisings. Uh, so today we're going to touch on some of the topics of these issues, but we'll also be speaking more uh, more broadly about Gillian's research, uh, conducting research on the Middle East, and also speak a little bit more specifically about some of her work in Jordan. Uh, so Gillian, thank you very much for being with us today.
1: I'm delighted to be here.
0: No, uh, thank you again for being with us. And um, I thought maybe we could start off. Um, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how you ended up with your research focuses in the region, and particularly what drew you to Yemen and Jordan, where you've done you know such extensive field work.
1: It's a great question. Uh, there's kind of a personal and a substantive side of it. I was studying in Cairo in the Casa program, learning Arabic in 1990, 91, and part of that program, you learned the Egyptian Amiya, and so many people having spent time in Egypt and learning that dialect stayed to continue research for their dissertations in Egypt. And part of me, the personal side was just, I wanted to do something different. It felt that there was so many people there. It was in a way difficult to, it was easy to do research, but certain topics were difficult because there were so many researchers knocking on doors. The more substantive reason was I had been working on this civil society project with uh, Dick Norton and... Part of the, that project, which was a multi-country project, uh, I was the research assistant and then the program officer for that project for a number of years. One of the topics that came out of that had to do with, uh, are Islamist groups part of civil society or not? Because the concept of civil society came out of a secular tradition of liberal social order. And so many of the authors that contributed to those volumes had differing ideas about Islamists. And so I became interested in Islamists. And at that time, this is the early 1990s, both Jordan and Yemen had Islamist parties emerge to compete in elections. And so part of me was just looking to do something different from Egypt, as much as I loved Egypt. And then this substantive project sort of fell on my lap, and I decided to structure it around a comparison. I should also say that I had met several people who had traveled in Yemen and visited in Yemen, and they were all just wowed by the place. And it really was magical, and I'm really fortunate to have been there at a at a good time for the country. Uh, and it actually was fantastic for my research because in both of those places, they were not flooded with researchers. People mock Jordan as the Hashemite Kingdom of boredom. Uh, you know, after Cairo and Beirut and these very lively, vibrant cities, Amman felt like a sleepy town. And certainly in the early '90s, it's much more of a sleepy town than it is today. Uh, so it was actually really also excellent for my research because I had access. Ministers weren't used to people pounding on their doors uh, for uh, interviews. People opened both the Islamic political parties I looked at, the Islah party in Yemen and the Muslim Brotherhood in Jordan, both completely opened their doors and their libraries to me. And I would hang out there doing research in their libraries and going through records. And so it it turned out to be, uh, for research purposes, a really wonderful uh, choice that I lucked out with.
0: Uh, That's very interesting. And also interesting that you mentioned the lack of research in those countries. I mean, uh, well, it seems like the number of researchers working on Yemen has remained more limited. It's strange to think of Jordan as an under-researched country. It's now one of the, maybe the most accessible and and probably most researched countries in the region.
1: Yeah, it is. And I think there's going to be a flood of, or explosion of Jordan studies, just as we're seeing an explosion of Tunisia studies, because Jordan is a place where you can continue to do work. Uh, Several years ago, with the outbreak of the Civil War, I was sitting on the Fulbright uh, Selection Committee of Junior Scholars, the student uh, researchers. And I don't remember the number. Let's say it was 80, which was way higher than a normal application year. And they also had more Fulbrights because the Fulbright program had been closed down in a number of neighboring countries. But a lot of the projects you could see were people that weren't really deeply interested in Jordan but they were trying to salvage this year when they couldn't go do research in Syria or Yemen or other places they had hoped to do research. And so there were a ton of, uh, of studies on various refugee issues, et cetera. That scholarship is just starting to come out. And I think in the next 10 years, because Jordan is still accessible, uh, I think we're going to see a real, uh, I don't want to say Renaissance, because that implies that we're in the Middle Ages in the Dark Ages, but I think we're going to see a flourishing of uh, studies on Jordan, which makes me very happy.
0: Yeah, that would be great to see. I mean, I I, I see that there's a number of key authors working on Jordan, but I don't feel like there's a very sort of wide, rich discussion on Jordan yet.
1: I agree, yes.
0: But I, I guess at the same time, I also see that, you know, perhaps there's signs already at this point that there's a bit of sort of research fatigue in Jordan and that, you know, people are maybe becoming a bit less welcoming to, to both researchers, but just sort of foreigners in general in Jordan. So I'm not really sure how that will impact uh, research heading forward. Um, but turning a page a little bit, I mean, in 2013, uh, you wrote an article with Bassam Haddad regarding uh, teaching about the Middle East, in which you discussed the need to, to rethink the way the Middle East uh, cases and issues are taught. Uh, and you conclude that the Arab uprisings provided an important opportunity to get away from some of the previous uh, mainstream approaches to teaching the Middle East and teaching it on its own terms. Uh, do you see this reflected in the academic work that has actually emerged in the decades since the start of the Arab uprisings?
1: So it's a great question. The mainstream approaches in political science tend to focus on institutions and Contests at the government level. And I think that's essential and still needs to be done. I think it can be done better. And I talk about uh, in a moment why and how I think it can be done better. It, of course, depends on the question. But I do think there's also an openness inspired by work by people such as Lisa Wadine, Timothy Mitchell. There's a lot of people that went through their program really diving into some of those works, which are really rich. And they ask big, important questions, but not just focusing on government institutions and who's running for parliament. And indeed, my earlier work fell into the very mainstream of a comparative study of two political parties and how they were functioning. So I think there's a lot more interest in alternative approaches uh, and the shelf life of some of those works as so much longer. They've proved, you know, 20 years out how important and influential they are while many of the other ones fall by the wayside. And they were fine at the time, but they're just outdated. They came out before the uprisings, and the uprisings sort of called into question a lot of their assumptions. Uh, so I think there's a lot of interesting work coming out. I certainly know a lot of junior scholars, including a bunch working on Jordan, including yourself, but not only yourself, who are really doing you know really interesting different kinds of work. Uh, so I think that's great, and I think that's been encouraged. And I think it takes, in part... The people doing those interesting projects, uh, moving up the career ladder at universities where they are now in a position to guide the junior scholars to co- that come in to say, yes, this is a project and this is how to do it and to approve of it. Because you're, you're really at the mercy of who's willing to work with you uh, in ways that we don't address as much. So students coming out of a certain program look like students of X person, and that's always been the case. And that's fine, but getting people that do these sort of different kinds of approaches, like Lisa Wadeen, who who you know supervises a number of students every year, uh, who are doing incredibly interesting work, and now they're moving up and getting tenure in positions where they're going to oversee work. And so I think we're seeing a much more diverse range of methodologies uh, in the field. Again, it's not to sort of suggest that the mainstream uh, should is is problematic and shouldn't exist.
0: Uh, no, absolutely. And I, I think that's a point you've made clear in a number of your pieces, uh, including the introduction to the special issue for Melga that you edited with uh, Larissa Chomniak, where you highlight the benefits of some of the new approaches, but certainly don't deny the benefits and the validity of some of the more mainstream approaches. Uh, but I wonder, though, maybe if you could speak to some of the ways that you've tried to to sort of look for these different approaches or include these different approaches in your own work.
1: I have an article, actually a chapter forthcoming in a volume uh, edited by Nick Rush-Smith and Erica Simmons, and the volume is called Rethinking Comparison. And the ideas that I developed in, or that I talked about in that piece I co-authored with Bassam Haddad, I really develop in this piece for an alternative way to think about the uprisings. And it's building on a comparative work by Charles Tilley. He has a little handbook on comparative methodology called Big Structures, Large Processes, and Huge Comparisons, published by Russell, Russell Sage. And in that, he has the four kinds of comparisons are encompassing comparisons, individualizing comparisons, variation-finding comparisons, and universalistic comparisons. Mostly what we do in political science are individualizing comparisons, which is a deep dive into a single case study, which is fantastic, or variation finding comparisons, where you have two instances of something that either are most similar, most different, but basically you're you're trying to identify and explain the variation between the two. Putting aside universalizing comparisons, uh, which I don't find as interesting, he has this notion of encompassing comparisons. And the idea of an encompassing comparison is you have, say, states that there or individual objects of analysis, whether they're political economies or uprisings or states, state development, etc., but they're all attached to some larger processes, and so they're not entirely separate from each other. So, for example, the one example he gives in the book is birth order, so. You have three children, but they're not completely identical, even though they're raised by the same parents, because one is born earlier, one's born middle, one's born later. Maybe one of them's a problem child, and then the parents have to sort of react to the problem child. But that's going to affect the other children as well. Even as they are individuals, they're still shaped some ways by their connections to these larger processes, structures, etc., and the structure's response to other instances across the field. So I use in my chapter for this book, which should be out in 2021, it's called Rethinking Comparison, uh, of the Arab uprisings to show ways in which so many people are looking at things, uh, say, why did Tunisia's uprising turn out to be successful while Egypt's or the other ones did not? Why did this monarchy have an uprising, it crushed it, and the other monarchies did not. So these variation finding studies typically hold the each uprising as individual discrete. The only way they're seen as connected is maybe one was inspired by the other, or the governments were inspired by watching you know, what's happening in other countries. Uh, so trying to get ahead on repression rather than letting it get too far gone, et cetera. So what I'm arguing is, to using this encompassing comparison, we need to attend to not just the internal dynamics of each individual case, but to think through the ways in which broader connections matter. So, for example, the uprising in Bahrain, which gets widely overlooked, even though it was a massive uprising, turns violent. The government cracks down, and what is a very cross, it's not a sectarian uprising at all. There's Sunni and Shia very clearly documented protesting together. There's a wonderful documentary that Al Jazeera did in the midst of it called Bahrain shouting in the dark. I highly recommend it. It's great for teaching as well. The government then crushes the uprising and tries to frame it as sectarian that uh, was, you know, Iranian sponsored. External forces have come domestically to us. When in fact, that external connection is probably the only one that doesn't actually exist. When it crushes, it's crushed with uh, Saudi. Saudi Arabia and the GCC send troops. they specifically Saudi troops. That are U.S. tanks. That include mercenaries from Pakistan and Afghanistan. Some of the the Beltegia thugs that come in to, to harass the protesters come from any number of other Arab countries, including Jordan. The Daruk, some derricks were offered little tidy bonuses to go over. And the U.S., which has its uh, major Fifth Fleet based. Bahrain is certainly aware of everything that's happening. So what happens in Bahrain isn't only about this internal process to Bahrain. In the midst of this, Saudi Arabia begins, and the Gulf, but particularly Saudi Arabia, begins this increased intervention in the domestic politics of other countries, including in Egypt. So Egypt is very tightly connected to the United States. Their militaries are very interconnected. It relies tremendously on it. Uh, the U.S. is very keen on maintaining that relationship with Egypt, also because of the peace treaty with Israel. So has a very tepid response, kind of stands on the sideline when this is happening in Egypt, not stepping in to support the protesters. Uh, a few comments, but otherwise just kind of holding its breath. And then when the counter coup happens in 2013, Saudi Arabia to the rescue with tons of fun to help prop up the Sisi regime. So these kinds of connections between cases aren't systematically examined. There are certainly some that do There's Some great works on political economy. Uh, Adam Hania and John Shulcraft and um, others have done exceptional work drawing these connections. But the sort of dominance of these variation-finding approaches of Why Egypt, why not Tunisia, Or why Tunisia, not Egypt, uh, et cetera, miss these big questions. Part of the why some countries and not other countries has to do with military and security alliances. It has to do with the role of the United States and its relationship to particular regimes. That doesn't mean the U.S. goes in and crushes uprisings, but the U.S. stands by in certain kinds of ways, in certain cases. Because of those relations, it wants certain connections. When you add to that securitization, military connections, uh, economic flows, foreign direct investment, all of this web of, of uh, connections that are greater than the state. When you add those to the, to the really excellent studies of the internal dynamics of each individual cases, you get something that an encompassing comparison can help reveal those kinds of connections, those kinds of geographies of power that just holding case studies as separate, uh, can't begin to capture. And so that was my, my development of the idea that I laid out in that article with Bassam.
0: Oh, well, that sounds very interesting. And I mean, I feel like you highlighted the need for these kinds of approaches quite early in the development of the literature after the Arab uprisings. Uh, I'm thinking here in particular of your 2015 article in Melg, uh, entitled Comparative Politics in the Arab Uprisings, um, where you commented on some of the dominant trends that were emerging, uh, particularly in relation to the prevalence of work on the, on the uprisings that focused on um, Either on robust authoritarianism or, or through social movement theory, uh, and really had the state in focus.
1: Yes, that, that article that was was one of the main waystations in my my road to developing this uh, alternative approach. I felt that I really loved that article. I'm proud of it. I felt there was a lot more critique in it and less of uh, here's how to do it differently. And so this is pushing forward to add more articulation of how it could be done differently.
0: Right, and is that something that you draw into your new book on Jordan, or or is that complicated by the nature of the the sort of country focus of the project?
1: No, it does. it It is in the book. So the book is called "Protesting Jordan: Geographies of Power and Dissent," and hopefully it'll be out in twenty twenty one. It's about to go out the door for review, so I'm hopeful it'll be out next year. It examines protests from the late nineteenth century up until the present in Jordan, and the ways in which I I make this kind of encompassing comparison isn't so much with another state and how it's connected to other forces so much as to look at the all the forces greater and outside of the quote unquote you know sphere or theater of Transjordan and later a Jordanian state and how they change. So for example we have the the Ottoman imperial project is displaced into a a British led colonial project, which has different you know objectives and techniques of governance and repression in mind. Uh, and then as Amir Abdullah tries to pull together gradually with the assistance of the British, tries to pull together uh, this state and build the basic infrastructure of a state, the people still aren't accepting necessarily this vision of what is Jordan. So we treat it. Jordan was created in 1921. But the boundaries that actually come to exist take at least a decade to really settle in. There are multiple iterations where the British keep trying and the French in various locales trying to establish Jordan's borders. And they just don't take because people are continuing to move in and across the region. So I look at those ranges of how the governing structures in Jordan are differently connected to things that go beyond Jordan throughout this course of this 130-year story that I'm retelling. And so we get to the present. So the way I was talking about Bahrain and Egypt, Jordan's uprising is... What happened in the dynamics of that uprising are a function of, in part, a lot of external connections, but also the fact that Abdullah could only pull his uh, regime together with the assistance of large amounts of British cash. There were a lot of cash payments, but also sort of quieting this very rebellious uh, people's. So from the Bedouin raids to the uh, Karak and urban towns where people were resisting and angry uh, and not necessarily against Emir Abdullah so much as wanting their piece of the pie. And so that's been the fragile coalition behind the the government, which is, you know, it's quote unquote, loyal support base, uh, is loyal because they're getting things from the regime. And so when the uprising happens, the peace treaty with Israel, importance of Jordan's stability to the United States, the fragility of the regime's support base, the waves of refugees, particularly Iraq, not yet the Syrian wave of refugees, uh, obviously the Palestinians from, from decades earlier, all connect to these broader processes. And so I'm trying to retell through a focus on resistance and protest, uh, the emergence and evolution and ongoing evolution of this state that's like, Really clearly focused into these, the role and connections of external, uh, quote unquote, external, regional, and international forces. The Gulf capital invested in Amman, security alliances with Israel and the United States, and security bases, and who's training whom on what soil. All of these matter in understanding uh, Jordan.
0: Oh, well, that sounds fantastic. And I can't really think of any books, really, that take sort of a lingerie approach to politics in Jordan.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's some tremendous work, obviously, by historians, oh, sure. Uh, but tend to sort of, you know, pick off pieces of the story. And I'm really trying to retell it, but not the way it's typically told. So the conventional story, of course, as you know, is... It's an invented nation, which of course is banal to say all states are invented. There's no such thing as states outside of people calling them into being. but true, it has a different history than, say, you know, Damascus or Cairo and and the greater environs. But it's it's told in the story of the British and the Hashimites come up and there's a the French British, secret agreement and they divide up the lands and this is governments forced into place. And then we go from there with the Palestinian refugees and etc. So it's told that way, but it's told as a story of all the dissent that existed was crushed. And the dissent that existed was crushed to the extent that it was, you know, British forces would bomb <laughs> Bomb areas or people would be arrested, but the longer story is that the state formed around in response to those uh, sites of resistance and tried to incorporate them into the regime. And so the shape it took was a result of protests, not because they crushed all the protests. And I have a very broad view of protests here. I'm talking about protests in the sense of people making claims, gathering to make claims. So. This, this uh, definition of protest can accommodate, you know, burning government buildings in the 1920s because they think they're being taxed too much, up until what we think of as protests and demonstrations in a familiar sense today. Um,
0: and in addition to temporality, some of your previous work has also highlighted spatiality. Um, you've written several pieces discussing spatiality and geography of protests in Jordan, comparing, for example, the different spaces and routes used by monarchically led and sanctioned marches on the one hand, and more contentious marches on the other. Uh, And elsewhere, you've also looked at spatial diffusion as well as spatial changes stemming uh, from neoliberalism. And I wonder, given your current historical examination of protests in Jordan, uh, whether it's possible to provide any insights on the way uh, the spaces of protests have changed in Jordan. Um, I mean, I, I find the differences between 2011 and the 2018 protests against the new tax law uh, particularly interesting, um, because there was not just a shift in location from Dachalia Circle to the Prime Ministry at Four Circle, uh, but there was also a difference in engagement between the actors um, in relation to the spaces. Um, The protesters, for example, were more compliant in 2018, uh, when they were asked to shift from the fourth circle uh, in front of the Prime Ministry to the street leading to Sani circle beside it. Uh, But in 2011, um, there was much more resistance to being pushed off of Dakhliya. And I mean, that's just one example, but I wonder if you had any thoughts sort of more generally on how the, the spatiality of protests have changed.
1: So this is, yeah, a big piece of my project. And I have an article forthcoming this summer in contention that lays out some of these issues. But to give you to answer some of those, I think since the uprisings, there's been a concerted effort on the part of the state to more directly control protest sites uh, in the following kinds of ways. So you mentioned the Fourth Circle. The Fourth Circle has been a site of protest since the 1989 opening, the 1989 protest, Um, because it's the site for the symbolic site of power that you are allowed to protest. You're not allowed to critique the regime or call out the king directly, although some do, a very small number, but some do, but you're not allowed to. So the prime ministry has always been a site of protest. And in the nineties, one of the techniques they would use, and I have several instances in my book, including journalists that uh, protesting changes to the Uh, press and publications law, would hold protests at that site. And that is not a traffic circle yet. It was called the fourth circle. But in the 90s, before the underpasses, it was basically a large intersection with a a light. Along Zahran Street, a lot of the other ones are actually circles. But fourth circle was not actually a circle at that time. And so these protesters could stream across in uh, this intersection when it was a red light and Bring everything to a stop because they would be standing where cars couldn't go. And so they would snarl that up. So that's been a site of protest um, very consistently when you're calling attention to the regime. So the big change that happens first isn't intended to stop protesters, but intended to clear, you know, speed the traffic on the street. From when the Fourth Circle in the late 90s, the first of the projects, it's a multi stage process, of course, to get all of those underpasses and overpasses uh, functioning. But when the first ones, uh, the circles closed and the first ones open with the underpass along Zahran Street, it had the effect of diminishing the impact of protests at that site because you couldn't bring the traffic to a halt anymore. At best, you could bring traffic on the top of the circle to the halt, but everybody else was speeding by and they also couldn't actually be seen. So they lost some visibility because you could pass through the circle in any of the, the two underpasses and not even know there were protesters up there. But people would still hold protests up there. The the teachers union strikes, uh, you know, before and after the uprisings were held up there. There was the orphan strike that happened after the uprisings. But gradually the government is trying to stop protests from happening in that site. And the first thing they do, uh, and this is in, I have to check the date, I believe it's 2014. It could be 2013. But at 2014 or 2013 or 2014, they put a, a metal barricade fence around the circle and the benches as a place to congregate, which was also a place for protest, gets significantly diminished. And they put trees and landscaping inside of it. And this becomes a, te- a technique that happens across the city. They do this at the Dachalia uh, traffic circle after the the March 24th youth protests in the spring of 2011. That gets fenced off. Uh, a few years ago, there's uh, if you go on Zahran, heading toward the fifth circle, just to the left, there's a vacant lot that's sort of a parking lot that is now fenced off. Although that's a more ornate fence, but that became an alternative site of gathering. As you mentioned, the spring two thousand and eighteen uh, protests that are the tax they start as tax protests, but then become a, essentially anti austerity protests. The fourth circle is the target. There are huge protests downtown. And this is one of the things I monitor. Downtown is a site of protest that goes back to the 20s when there's in 1928, there's a massive protest down there against the organic law, which establishes the monarchy. And in the 50s against the Baghdad Pact, the national movement then. So that downtown area by the Grand Husseini Mosque is known as a site of protest from the 20s to the present. The fourth circle only emerges as particularly contentious after the uprisings. Uh, when the government really doesn't want these protests to happen and they're larger and larger. And the 2018 ones were significant. They had to, you know, bring in all kinds of troops to stop flow of traffic there. Then they diminished. And then that fall again, fall of 2018, uh, they started up again. And these are, you know, also including the uh, people from the outer governor, it's coming in. And sometimes it's about Palestine. Sometimes it's about jobs. It's often about corruption. Uh in that fall of 2019, the government takes the decision to shut down the Fourth Circle entirely to protests. And that's when they move them to this new site, this parking lot by the Jordan Hospital, which is sort of closer to the Abdali Exchange, on the towards the Abdali Exchange from the Fourth Circle. But what's funny is that they're still called Fourth Circle protests. And I have a really funny story. In the October, I went to there was an anniversary of the Hebet Nissan, the 1989 protests that's at the fourth circle. So I have the announcement, you know, it's posted on Facebook in Arabic. And, you know, I, so I am at the fourth circle. It's supposed to be six o'clock. It's five 30. Nobody's there. It's quarter to six. Nobody's there. So I pull out my phone. I look it up. I'm like, Nope, it says Duar Arabia. it's fourth circle. So I, five to six, I'm like, I don't know. So I get a call from someone because I many activists I've been in touch with for years. He's like, where are you? I'm like, I'm at the fourth circle. He goes, oh, the Fourth Circle isn't actually at the Fourth Circle anymore. (laughs) So then I walk down there. But what's interesting is even though the government won't allow them at the Fourth Circle, people insist on calling them the Fourth Circle protests because that's still so symbolically powerful, but they're not there anymore. So your question was, what has changed? I think the government has made a much stronger effort to control protest spaces, with the exception of downtown. Downtown is still not that contentious of a space. You can gather tons of people. It's not that disruptive. You start at the Husseini Mosque, you move slowly to the municipal center, and then you go home. This is a kind of protest the government likes, right? Because it's very contained and it's not particularly disruptive. For whatever reason, it's decided that Fourth Circle protests are not going to happen at the Fourth Circle. You can protest in this other spot. And so they're trying to control these spaces of dissent where... where, where uh, people can express uh, opposition, and there's also these random closings. If, if you know across Jordan, you might be going to a traffic circle, and they have those metal barricades where the entrance ramp is just closed, and so you have to loop all the way around to get to where you want to go. So that's what I think has is, is significantly changed in the past decade.
0: Uh, and and turning to one other aspect of protests in Jordan, um, in your 2005 article, Cop Rock protest. Uh, you explain how in 1997, yes. uh, a protest against normalization with Israel uh, following the 1994 Wadi Araba Treaty uh, resulted in a strange event where the predominantly East Banker security forces uh, performed a traditional dance as a way of signaling their Jordanianness and thereby contesting the legitimacy of the predominantly uh, Palestinian Jordanian protesters. Uh, and in that way, you were there, you were highlighting the importance of a Jordanian identity that was not juridically or anti-colonially based as it once had been, but it had become culturally focused, uh, especially after Black September and the 1988 disengagement, um, I guess, as Joseph Massad sort of also highlights. Um, in your research on protests since, have you seen the identity divides and conflicts change? Uh, perhaps to uh, to be more class-based recently, or focused on economics or human rights, as some others have suggested. Uh, does that make sense?
1: It does. It's a really interesting question. Uh, first, a quick comment on the dancing, dancing riot police. What I didn't know at the time when I did that article, because I'd been to a number of protests, but not, I mean, maybe at five or six protests at that time. I wasn't writing on protests. I didn't know how common dancing is in a lot of protests in Jordan it's not unusual for people to break into dubka-like dances and sing songs. That doesn't mean the conclusions uh, that I drew don't hold necessarily, but it, it's a much wider phenomenon that I realized. And a lot of it, I, which I argue there, which I still think is the case, is demonstrating this Jordanianness. Like We are traditional Jordanians. We have this long attachment to the land. Uh, you don't find... An, you know, protest when Palestinians protest, any of that. Palestinians largely protest only around uh, international issues, but mostly around uh, questions, you know, Israel-Palestine questions. So when there's major uh, Israeli incursions into Palestinian areas, uh, into Gaza, etc., you'll find very large protests. But Palestinians mostly don't protest. So it's tricky saying... Uh, what it means when East bankers protest simply because they're mostly at the forefront of protests anyways. But what has changed is the protests outside of the Capitol uh, have changed in character from they used to be largely, there were major protests in nationwide in 1989 and not entirely nationwide, but the bread protests of 1996 uh, and then other anti-austerity kinds of moments you see nationwide protests. What's really changed is since, since the 2000s, since day wage labor movement to secure permanent jobs for people who have been doing jobs for years, but they're paid on a daily basis, so they have no job security. Dock workers in the south, uh, neighborhoods in the south, in Aqaba, that are being dislocated entirely for these planned residential communities for mostly elite Amanis to come down and have a vacation property. You're finding more and more really specific protests around specific issues rather than the broader we're angry at the economic condition or rage. And there's a really rich history of protests, which is part of uh, what I cover so much in the book. There's so many protests that people, I have tell people how many protests there are and they don't believe me. Like I'll say averaging hundreds every year and they just stare at me. Um, but they're often small. And if you're not looking for them, you don't find them. There's tremendous labor protest. But what you find going into the uprisings is these movements of, uh, around economic grievances are among the poorer uh, communities of the East Bank community that supposedly make up the loyal support base. Certainly there's people in those communities that are flourishing, that are you know, investing in the capital and taking control of this or that industry that's been privatized, et cetera. Uh, so there's a, you don't want to speak of East bankers as any kind of a monolith, but you're finding along this economic divide, which you really rightly point to people that are just fed up and protesting locally, there, are uh, crossing the red line of critiquing the King sometimes, not consistently, but things that were unimaginable before the uprisings are happening, you know, a handful of times a year. Um, marching to the capital, demanding jobs. Uh, so there's shifting protest repertoires in those communities, particularly since the late 2000s uh, up until today that I find really fascinating. At the same time, there's aspects of those repertoires that are 100 years old, such as burning tires to block roads. And that happens with tremendous frequency. It's happened in the North. There's a lot of grievance over the lack of water and they'll march the municipalities and protest in front of the municipality demanding water, but they'll also burn tires and block roads. And that's a hundred-year-old uh, repertoire. So I, I'm trying to sort of trace what are the innovations and what are the sort of continuances. Another of the innovations is the the tents. Tents were used very infrequently. There was a 2009 protest at the Kaludi mosque, uh, uh, uh Opposed to Israeli actions in uh, Palestinian lands, that erected a tent that was there for several nights. Uh, there was a the day wage labor movement had a tent downtown one night where women were uh, sheltered. They had female protesters to draw attention, and they were sheltered there. But the with the uprisings and particularly with Tahrir. The idea of a a sustained, tented protest is really contentious for the government and really doesn't like it. And this is part of the reason that March 24th protest was met with such violence, was they were seeking to have a sustained protest uh, with shelter. And this gets to the second part of your question. That movement, it was trying to portray itself as a patriotic movement, as pro-nationalism. This is not about... Palestinian East Banker. We're all Jordanians and we support Jordan and we're only asking for reforms. We're not asking for the fall of the regime. That was represented later as a Palestinian led uh, protest, which it wasn't. And so that narrative took hold that ah, these were Palestinian agitators. These weren't loyal nationalists. And so that's one of the ways in which the governments then, you know, it goes in with violence to break up that protest and then tries to affect the narrative afterwards that these weren't good, loyal Jordanians simply asking for reform.
0: And right. And so I guess it keeps the sort of culturally referent or East Bank focus in, in signaling loyalty.
1: Yes, exactly.
0: Great. Well, I think that's probably a good place for us to leave it today. Jillian, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really been great to talk to you.
1: Thank you. I'm so happy to be here and thank you for uh, talking Jordan with me.
0: No, thank you. And thanks to everyone who listened in. We'll be back very soon with another episode of the Milk Podcast.